Welcome to Movie Maker. Our guest today is Oliver Hermanis, co-writer and director of the new film Mafi, out today. Mafi is set in South Africa in 1981 during the apartheid regime and tells the story of a young man conscripted into the military to fight two perceived threats, black South Africans and communists. He and his fellow soldiers are white, but that doesn't mean they're united. He's gay in a time and place where homosexuality is a crime. Mafia is a complex, exquisitely subtle film that illustrates the hell of apartheid and all forms of bigotry with a show-don't-tell restraint that resonates indelibly. I'm Tim Malloy, and here's Oliver Hermanis, director and co-writer of Mafia, which is in select theaters and digital and VOD platforms right now. Oliver Hermanis, welcome to Movie Maker. It is such a privilege to get to talk to you about this film. Before we start, uh, you and I have something in common. We both attended the greatest university in the world, UC Santa Barbara. Oh, did we? That's amazing. I love UC Santa Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you study film there? Uh, I did, yeah, I, I did. And um, my memory of being there is sort of defined by this this night that I broke my nose in the ocean um, and and had to go to like a, a, a rhinoplasty surgeon because um, I was in Santa Barbara, so I was surrounded by rhinoplasty surgeons. Um, and, <laughs> uh, but like they couldn't help me. And so I just, I, I spent a good few weeks walking around with very dark glasses and a very bruised face. Um, but I loved, I loved going to university. I love walking around, I just love the environment. It's so wonderful. Oh, it was beautiful. I, I've never been to South Africa, but I always thought that the climate might be sort of similar. They both seem like two of the prettiest yeah, in the world. It is. And I'm from Cape Town. So in Cape Town, you know, we, we also have this relationship with, with the ocean and um, a sort of coastal lifestyle. Something that we certainly don't have in common. Uh, you were born, I believe, in 1983 in South Africa yes. when apartheid was still going. Yes. Do you have any memories of what that system was like, or did your parents tell you anything about it? Uh, did it touch your life personally? Um, it, it definitely did. I mean, my my parents were very critical people, um, and particularly when I was born, the eighties in South Africa was probably the most politically uneasy time. You know, the eighties is kind of when the sort of change was really um, being mounted and so it was a very violent time it was a time when the government was really cracking down on um what they deemed illegal organizations and my parents belonged to many illegal organizations <laughs> um and so i have interesting memories of that childhood and one of the key ones is that when i was three we left cape town where i was born we just moved to this very small town called petsburg bay and it was all kind of as a result of my parents feeling that they needed to um, take the heat of themselves essentially um, and so I remember the, the 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 beaches particularly going to the beaches with my mother and and just you know she would take us to beaches that were exclusively for white people and she would do this as an act of protest um, but for my siblings I would I remember I'm the youngest I would remember my siblings just you know being utterly distraught and going to the beach it was very strange the idea of going to the beach was frightening to both my brother and sister mm. um, I was too young to kind of know why, but I remember them being incredibly afraid. Um, so we, I have those kinds of memories of, 
of my parents' political actions that had an impact particularly on my siblings and as a result of me. For people who can't see you, this is a podcast. What What is your ethnic background? So in South Africa, we have a race of people called colored people, which I know in America, the word colored is a problematic term, but in South Africa, it's not. So colored South Africans, we are the product of, of the colonial kind of history of South Africa. So my heritage is, a, is actually... I'm undefined to me, but it, it's essentially a mix of white European influence being the Dutch and the British, plus a potential indigenous sub-Saharan African, plus a potential Southeast Asian uh, influence. Cape Town is the product of the Dutch East India Company having a port on its way from the West to the East. And so it became this melting pot and the under apartheid, the, the, the colored race or the colored community was kind of defined and that is the heritage of my heritage and that's my parents heritage as well yeah and they were can you talk about the political activities that they were involved in i mean saying political is <laughs> weird to me because i mean it's human rights activities it was political in the sense that like yeah my my my, my dad's <laughs> my dad's chosen form of protest which is very hilarious was my dad is an incredibly brilliant chess player um and so he would he would arrange illegal chess tournaments between um, black, colored, and 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 ultimately white uh, chess clubs, and that was illegal at the time. You know, you, you could not play, you could not, and nothing was interracial. You could not do anything across racial lines. Um, and my dad did that. He he just arranged illegal chess tournaments. Um, and ultimately, the illegality of it was the fact that the people attending or playing in these tournaments were of different races. Um, Beautiful. But they belonged to they belonged to many different organizations that were you know were, were actively protesting apartheid and um, and mobilizing people. Um, I think for them it was it was quite dangerous to be honest in the eighties. I believe it. It sounds like an absolutely terrifying place to live, especially as a person of color. Especially yeah. at that time, you know, there was a there was there was the clamping down on, on any kind of dissidents. Can you, that, that obviously provides the backdrop for your film. Can you sort of set up what Mafia is about for people who aren't familiar with it? Uh, Mafia is the story of a young white teenager, young conscript, Nicholas, who has to fulfill his military service um, in the early 80s. And at the time, South Africa was engaged in a border war with Angola um, at our at then northern border, which is now the north border of Namibia. Um, and he has to go through the the roller coaster of military you know, service and training and we journey with him through that and during this time he's you know forever changed in many different ways and one particular way that he's changed is that i think he, he kind of realizes comes to terms with the uh his sexuality comes to the front but also he experiences and commits certain acts that will forever stay with him and change him yeah you know his sexuality is so much at the forefront of the movie and the racial dynamics are in the background. You address them very strongly at the very beginning. Uh, you make clear that this is a horribly racist system, but yeah. then it doesn't have a very pro prominent role in the film. And I just thought the Hollywood version, there would almost be this sort of, you know, intersectionality where he like falls in love with a person of color or something and right. realizes <laughs> the error of his ways. Um, but you didn't make an obvious, you know, hit people over the head with, with a message type of movie. Can you talk about how you walk that line? 
Yeah, I think it's it's maybe just my personal taste in movies. I didn't want to make the interracial love story. Um, I think the other thing is that the nature of apartheid, the nature of the time was that, which we try to reflect in the way that we tell the story in this film, is that races did not interact. So mm -hmm. the brief moments of racial intersection that we have in the film are meant to highlight the fact that they were kind of, they were rare, but also they were loaded. So, you know, when a train full of young white men on their way to, to, their, to their military training encounter a black man, which is who's standing alone in the station, which we have in the film, that, the, that intersection is, is, is just fraught with danger and fraught with the potential for, for humiliation. And that, in a sense, was a lot of what it was like to be a black person in South Africa during apartheid. You, you, were, you were always at risk of being dehumanized. Um, and so the, the important thing for me in telling the story was that I wanted the audience to fully to be fully positioned in the headspace of white South Africa at the time and have kind of no room to breathe in, in that perspective, um, which I suppose is just not the Hollywood way of doing things. Well, I really appreciate that you never delivered a message. I mean, I, I think viewers start to resent a movie when it tells you what to think, especially if it reinforces what you already think. You're just like, why am yeah. I, why am I here hearing a lesson that I already believe? Um, Absolutely. I mean, it's prescribed. It kind of just feels very fake. It's false. Yeah. At the same time, you're able to get across that these white soldiers hate themselves. They, they, they come to hate themselves in a, in, a, in a, in sort of a very abstract kind of way. I think there are some of them that, that didn't hate themselves and, 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 you know, just fully submerged into the headspace of, of, of the apartheid war machine. But I think what we've learned from making Morphe, to be honest, because we had to engage with many men who had served in the military and, and done this. And, you know, one million white men in South Africa had to do this through the period of the 70s to the 80s. And most of them are still alive today. So I think that idea of hating themselves actually only saw at least having a sort of sense of trauma or sense of conflict about that time. It only really materialized in their lives well after um, the end of apartheid. Hmm. This has gotten some comparisons to Full Metal Jacket, in part because a lot of it takes place during boot camp. Can you talk about the Kubrick influences, uh, both the Full Metal Jacket <laughs> and Barry Lyndon? I mean, you used the music from Barry Lyndon at one point. Yeah, it's completely accidental. I mean, Full, oh, full really? Metal Jacket. Yeah, we. I mean, in fact, there's kind of a rule that we did not watch any, any military films while writing and particularly shooting. Um, just always out of the fear that it would make us sort of just imitate other forms. And um, I think one of the more hilarious um, ironies or intersections of this is when the film premiered, there was a lot of conversation about how I had probably intentionally uh, reclaimed the volleyball scene from <laughs> Top Gun, um, which also we were kind of completely surprised by. I mean, I, I think that there was, yeah, we definitely wanted to, to to make a particular film. I think the thing about war films or films about militaries is that you want it, to, it's a, they can become generic. And so we wanted to make sure that there was something about how we could make this specific to the South African context. And so I didn't want it to have any tropes. And But ultimately the archetypes are there. You've got the sort of like sinister, you know, sadistic drill sergeant and the sort of destruction and humiliation and the, and the cracking down of individuality. So those things are kind of universal, but we wanted to, we didn't want it to become, yeah, we didn't want it to become pastiche. So um, it's nice in the end that people feel like, you know, we've achieved something that, that can be compared to a great film like Full Metal Jacket. Um, and then interestingly with the music that you're talking about, 
from Barry Lyndon in my bigger fear when I decided to use it was that I actually remembered it from a more contemporary film, which is The Piano Teacher, because it's mm. used to quite great effect in that film. Um, and uh, so it was the it was just more the fear of just using a sort of piece of work that was more popular in other forms. Um, but I, I remember that it was in Barry Lyndon, but I, I, I didn't think people would, would draw a line, but they, they might have. <laughs> One of the things, there's an absolutely glowing and I agree with it completely variety review that I think made that observation. It may have been deadline, um, but I just went, wow, that's a very, that's a very astute critic. And you're saying then that this was absolutely not intended as an homage to Kubrick or an homage to Top Gun or anything like that, or a critique of those. No, not at all. No, we, we, we were quite religious about, about, <laughs> you know, just like keeping our brains kind of fresh and empty. And I'm, I'm in the same, the same situation right now. I'm making a remake of a Kurosawa film. And so the great desire is just to not watch Kurosawa <laughs> mm. <laughs> to just make, just to make sure that I don't sort of, it doesn't sort of, become an imitation towards the big fear of having having sort of false ideas because they're subliminal at the moment in your head. I definitely want to come back to that, but I also want to just compliment you on your use of music. The point is, it was amazing from beginning to end. And I love the horror movie like strains at the very beginning. And <laughs> as you get into dance music and more popular music, and especially there's a scene almost exactly halfway through where I had no idea what was going on. And the musical cue is so powerful. Um, it involves a pool It involves swimming. And that was the moment when I just thought this filmmaker is completely in control of this movie. Well, thank you very much. You, you just really had the confidence to know they will stay with me at this point, even in this very unexpected turn. And it worked it worked so well. I mean, you never actually know. I think that's the thing. It's like you hope that, I mean, I think the editor definitely raised an eyebrow when I arrived that day with that piece of music going, I, it's, I want to put this in the phone. Um, I think it's, I think what was wonderful about making Morphe was that just the team behind it, the producers particularly, there was a, there was a willingness for me to kind of, you know, just have a, be able to play. Um, I think that the music is a big part of that because I wouldn't say that the music was something that was that I had sort of refined while I was shooting it and writing it. It kind of came as the third act of this creative process. Um, and when it arrived and when I was very certain about a lot of the pieces of music that I chose, um, it, it just felt like it was right and it was sort of coming together. Um, and I think that's kind of when you feel like as a filmmaker, you're, you're in the right space where the environment is allowing you to, to innovate. Um, and that, that's a very difficult space to achieve because it, it, there's so many, there's so many things that there's so many elements that it takes, particularly when it comes to the controls and, 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 and the investment in your form that you hope that people would give you the freedom to kind of go with those big ideas that we don't know how they're going to be received until, until the form is you know, put out into the world. Wow. Well, to use the uh, American cliche, you knocked it out of the park. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I don't know if that means anything to a South African. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it translates, it just transcends. <laughs> um, I also wanted to ask about, this book was based on a book, this film was based on a book. Can you talk about your introduction to the book and when you knew you wanted to make it into a film, what your, what your in was? 
so I was I was approached. The producers approached me and asked if I'd read the book and if I was interested. And I hadn't read the book, so I I, I was said they gave me a copy and I took me a short while to read it because I was promoting my previous film. I was traveling with that film. Um, and eventually I, I got back to them and I, I, I didn't immediately connect with it. I wasn't sure what it was about the, the book that they were interested in. I didn't, I knew that for me, it was a launch pad. I, I wasn't interested in potentially telling that particular story. I was interested in the setting. Um, and thankfully when we, when we spoke again, that was exactly what they felt. Um, and so it, it was a process of of taking the setting and this idea of the army and the indoctrination and the, the machinery that was being used in the 80s to sort of to sort of brainwash and build these white South African men into a certain kind of man that had a certain kind of attitude to the world and a certain kind of influence over the world. Um, I was interested in that. Um, and so that scene that you're speaking about with, with you know, the that's in the middle of the film, that scene is something that comes from my own life. And so it was this process of developing the film and kind of influencing the, the story with experiences of my own so that it become more personal to me, which I think is sort of necessary for me to make a film. Are you able to talk about those experiences or is that too specific? <laughs> no, it was interesting because I, 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 knew that I, I knew that the thematic of Morphe was shame. I knew that we were telling the story of a young man who was being indoctrinated by a system of shame. The word morphe itself is an Afrikaans language slur. And it, in South Africa, it's a word you're not allowed to use. It's a word that, that, that is, a, is a weapon of shame um, and, is, and is derogatory. And so that's, you know, having a movie called Morphe is such a proclamation, particularly in South Africa. You know, we had billboards up all over the country. People would go nuts seeing that word in public because it's just wrong to see it. Um, and... Uh, so I needed, I wanted there to be a heart at the, at the center of it. There needed to be something that was tangible to me. And um, I never had the experience as extreme as I wrote it in the script, but it was the same idea, that sort of moment of the loss of innocence. And I sort of remembered this experience of my own life of being quite young, going to a, to a camping site and just being identified by a, an older man um, who was shaming me ultimately. Um, and... So I kind of amplified that into into the scene that's in the film. Mm. That and that's the crucial scene I was talking about earlier. I mean, it's such a powerful scene, and it's so well done. And I'm also, I don't know. I mean, people talk about movies as sort of teaching morality, and I know we've talked about not wanting to dictate morality, but um, yes. I, as as a recent dad myself, it just made me think like, be prepared to be a good dad in a moment like that. Like, be prepared to handle this. And not, I think, it's, I think it's a hard thing for parents because you know children they they pick up so subtly how their parents as adults can be shamed, um, shamed into submission. And um, there was a really interesting scene in our, in our film. There was a really interesting scene to to work out with actors because it brings up so many kind of dynamics. Um, and it, it, I think it, you know, I try to make a film. I try to make films where we're trying to just pose a question. I think that's how we can manage that morality kind of problem of, of films being too preachy or, or too prescriptive is hoping that the film just throws up the question and poses the question and hopefully the question kind of resonates with the audience rather than a prescribed answer. And, and, and so you hope that a scene like that at the center of this film kind of gets to the heart of the question. Yeah. You, you talked about doing a Kurosawa remake next. Um, yes. That, that seems like a movie, people will be mad at you just for making it. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. 
Absolutely. <laughs> what, what was the especially, especially making it a Kurosawa that is very loved. <laughs> <laughs> so what film are you remaking and um, how are you approaching it? Uh, it's a, it's a, it's the Kurosawa film called Ikaru, which he made in 1952. Mm -hmm. um, and it's one of his more humanist films, it's sort of contemporary. It was made, it's set in 52, it was made in 51. And it's about life in Japan at the time, about a, you know, a, a bureaucrat who's, whose life is coming to an end and he has an existential kind of question of the meaning of his life. Um, and our screenplay for our version of it is written by Kazuo Shiguru. Um, and so I, I was kind of charmed into this by Ishiguro, to be honest. Mr. Ishiguro <laughs> himself convinced me that this was a that he had an, an interpretation of this film that he thought would be just very interesting for a British setting. And I think he's very right. I think one thing I love about Ishiguro um, is that he has the sort of sensitivity about the stoicism of of England and and a, and and the sort of the nature of service. And I think it actually resonates in a lot of his work, but particularly in the film and the book, like The Remains of the Day. Um, and there's something about our film that kind of is another exploration of this through the, through the eyes of Ishiguro. So I'm, I'm just very grateful that I get the opportunity to be the director who gets to you know, interpret that and, and work with his work. I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you. What... Uh... What was the most difficult part? I can think of a lot of potential difficult parts of this film, but can you talk about the biggest problem that you found yourself having to solve and how you solved it? In Murphy, um In Murphy. In the making of the film or in the writing of the film? Either one, actually. Uh, I think in the writing of the film, the, the, the hardest part was that I, I knew intrinsically that I didn't want it to be a love story. It, it, that the connection between the two young men at the, at, that is the sort of genesis, the thrust of the story was not about love. It was about sexual awakening. And so it was this challenge to make a film about a queer teenager that didn't fall into the sort of tropes of it becoming a gay fantasy about men in the military. Um, so the overcoming of that was just to have a very hard rule that we were not going to have a sex scene or there was not going to be any kind of major nudity that the, I knew that the, the, the that our version of a sex scene or our, our, our greatest moment of intimacy would be the slightest gesture, which we have is like one man touching another man's face. Mm -hmm. um, so I suppose the way we overcame it was just having a set of rules and sticking to them. Mm. Wow. What have you been asked about the most? Is there is there anything that I should have asked but didn't? <laughs> Actually, no. I like it when people don't ask the things that I've been asked many times. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, I, no. I, I, what is the thing that's asked the most? Um, a lot of people ask about the casting and about the um, the nature of those actors and how we were able to work with them because they none of them were actors before they did this movie and and um, we, I had quite a I had quite a sort of ground up process with with the actors and, and how I kind of got them to that headspace. Um, but that's not necessarily something you might want to know about. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I did think your actors were absolutely incredible. I kind of loved them. They, 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 they were, you know, it took us almost two years to cast this film. It was a very long process and they were just, they were just so willing and eager. It was just such an exciting endeavor for all of them because most of them were, you know, very, very young, I'm still at high school. Um, 
And so the whole idea of this process for them was just, just, just amazing. And so they kind of just trusted me and did everything I asked them to do and were fully prepared, perhaps more than a more trained actor would. There was just a complete submersion from all of them. And so I think it just resonates. I think that, that their commitment to, to, to living it, truly living the experience that I was trying to recreate was is the great strength of the film. Um, so there's a, I have a real sense of gratitude to, to all of them for, for suffering. So it was really hot when we were shooting. There were, there were many, many times in the making of this film that the actors were just experiencing incredibly grueling um, circumstances, whether it was freezing cold water or gale force winds or excruciating heat wearing military gear and doing way too many push-ups. And you know, they, they, just, they just soldiered on, ironically. <laughs> And the last thing, maybe I'm thinking as too much of a capitalist here, but I feel like since the, Queen's, <laughs> since, since the Queen's Gambit, there is such a greater passion for chess. And the movie with a movie about your father's experience sounds absolutely incredible to me. Is that something you've considered? I definitely think about what I would make about my parents um, and when it would be the right time in my lifetime and career to make it. And I think my the way that I'm, the way I'm leaning at the moment is that I would probably frame the story of my parents and their political shenanigans in in a, in a sort of comedic kind of way because one I I had a slightly life is beautiful kind of experience as a kid where I was just being lied to by the nature of what was really going on and I never knew why I was sleeping in tracksuits in the height of summer I was I was always made to believe that we were going on an emergency holiday at the drop of the hat but in fact I was in tracksuits because there was the fear that our house would get raided and my parents would be arrested and my mother wanted me to be dressed sort of practically in case I would just be shipped off to another family member. So I look back at all those things and sort of see the humor in it now. And I think I'd love to just get to the point where I get to do that as a, as a film. That was Oliver Hermanis, co-writer and director of Mafi, which is out today on digital and VOD platforms and in select theaters. I'm Tim Malloy from Movie Maker. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to this podcast, perhaps recommend it to a friend. Visit us any damn time at moviemaker.com and see you very soon. Thanks for listening.